Would you please pray with me? Abba Father, thank you so much, uh, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for how you display that in the beauty of your creation, but how you most powerfully demonstrate that love in sending your son. And Lord, I thank you for him. And, and we ask that as we come into your word this morning, that you would send out your spirit into our hearts. Uh, Lord, that that last verse of the song would be our prayer, that we would see you for who you are. Uh, Lord, that we would come to you uh, with surrendered hearts and that we would uh, know you and be sent out in you. So Lord, come and have your way with us. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So recently at the Patrick household, we've been doing a lot of playing basketball. Both of my girls, Daphne and Iris, are on teams, and it has been fun to get to practice with them on Monday nights and Tuesday nights, and then to have double headers, you know, on, uh, on Saturday. Usually we've got at least two games, and sometimes we get three or four if we're lucky. Um, you know, my favorite days are the days when they start us out early at 8 a.m., and then somehow we end up with a four o'clock game for the second child. You know, it just perfectly bookends the day. You know, I've, I've really enjoyed um, getting to coach my girls in something that I really love to do growing up. It's just been a delight and a joy of my heart. And one of the things that I've had to teach them, I had to teach them both the same lesson first. It's one of the first lessons that you need to learn in basketball. Maybe Jim can vouch for me. Uh, if, uh, if, if you're going to be any good. And so I want to just demonstrate what I needed to correct in my daughters. And I want you guys to shout it out and tell me what I need to do to make it right. Okay, here we go. Right. I need to get my head up, right? One of the first lessons of being a good basketball player is that you've got to get your head up. And the reason that you've got to get your head up is that the reason that's important is for a couple of things. So I'm going to need a volunteer because I want to see, uh, let's see, uh, who wants to be my volunteer? Come on, Nico. Come on, come on. Come on, everybody give Nico a hand. All right. So Nico, I'm going to dribble with my head down and I want you to try to steal the ball from me. Okay. You take, you just, just play some ferocious defense on me. Okay. Are you ready? Oh, that didn't take long. Good job. Way to go. Thank you, Nico. Thank you. So yeah, when we've got our head down, it's easier for the ball to get stolen from us. It's easier for us to be attacked. And just like, just like that, there's another reason we want to keep our head up. It's because we'll miss everything that's going on around us, right, if we have our head down. If I've got my head down, I can't see that Phillips right there Right? He's open. He's, got, he's ready for a three. You know? If I've got my head down, I can't see Zach is cutting toward the basket for a layup. And if I, if I can't, if I don't have my head up, I can't oop it to rib back there. <laughs> see? We almost missed, we almost missed the oop. Um, right? Um, <laughs> He would have, I know he would have dunked it if he could have caught it, you know. Um, so we'll miss everything that's going on around us. We'll also miss the opportunity to shoot. You know, unless our name is Steph Curry, who seems to just be able to throw it up from wherever he is without looking anywhere, uh, we're not going to know that we've got a wide open shot ready for us. 
And so what I'll say is, is that just like uh, in the basketball world, there's an analogous lesson for us to learn in the spiritual realm about keeping our heads up. And so in this morning's gospel, Jesus tests his disciples to see if they have their spiritual heads up. Now turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, if you, you... Get your blue Bible or open your app or whatever it is that you do. Let's spend some time in here today. Um, I think that's on page 891. Uh, if uh, Yes, that's right. So here in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, we see a very large crowd following Jesus. We read that there's about 5,000 men, which probably means that the crowd is somewhere around as many as 20,000 people that are behind Jesus that day. And as Jesus walks up and gets onto this top of this mountain, that he turns around and he, he looks at them and he sees them. And he sees that this crowd is hungry. He also, as he has his disciples sit down around him, he sees his disciples. And he sees them and he uh, decides that this is a great opportunity to test them, to test their hearts. Philip, he says, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? Where are we going to buy it? Philip is just struck. All he sees is the impossibility of the situation. Their money bag isn't big enough. And even if they had 200 days wages, it wouldn't be enough. Jesus, we could spend 200 days wages on food, and all we would have is a snack for these people, much less a meal. Andrew chimes in. He turns and he sees a little boy. He's got five loaves and two fishes, and he says, Jesus, there's a little boy that has some food here. But that flicker of faith that comes in Andrew's heart is quickly quenched by the scarcity of the situation. But what is that, Jesus, among so many? The rest of the disciples don't say anything. Their silence is deafening. Jesus' request seems absolutely overwhelming to them. And Jesus sees that his disciples have their heads down. When it's all said and done, after Jesus has fed everyone and uh, people are full and the baskets have been gathered, Mark's gospel shows us what was going on in the hearts and the minds of the disciples that day. It's in his sixth chapter of Mark there in verse 52. And there he writes that the disciples had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves and that their hearts had been hardened. Jesus' test that day revealed that his disciples' heads were spiritually down. They had completely missed whatever it was that Jesus had wanted them to see. And this test actually looked like it had completely backfired because now their hearts had been hardened toward him.
Where is God testing your heart right now? What circumstance in your life is God using for that test? Now, unless your name is Leslie Kingman, that test probably doesn't involve feeding thousands of people. (laughs) Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's a, a difficult relationship in the home with a spouse, with a child. Maybe there's a real issue around provision right now. Or you're really struggling in your vocation or your call. How are you responding? Are you just trying to get through it? Do you realize that Jesus is pursuing your heart right now? Two years ago, exciting things were happening in our life together. We uh, were really living into a season of seeing God turn his vision for us as his people into reality. We had just got property down in River North, and we're really beginning to see God moving us into that Mission 368 vision. And just as we thought God was moving us in one place, he unexpectedly opened an opportunity for, for grace to be replanted right here at the Northridge campus. It was an amazing time to be the people of God and to see God move in our midst. There was so much to be done. Literally overnight, my to-do list went kaboom. It exploded. (laughs) And with so much that needed doing, the responsible achiever in me put his head down and got to work. I didn't know it then, but a journey where God would test my heart had begun. And I had started that journey with my head down. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the few miracles that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. It certainly reveals Jesus' compassionate heart. It shows us that Jesus can abundantly provide for us. And there's a very powerful lesson in this about what happens when we bring the little that we have to Jesus in faith and see what he can do with it. But Jesus is doing something far more profound than just feeding a crowd this morning. It's something that the disciples missed, but that the crowd saw. Do we see it this morning? Let's turn back to the passage. Now, John begins retelling this story in verse 1, and depending on your translation with the words, after this. Those aren't throwaway words. John is connecting what is about to happen with the passage in John 5 that we just read last week. If you remember, it's what Drew preached on when he was speaking about the encounter that Jesus had with the Jews, where the ruckus kind of happened, where there was a conflict, and Jesus said, you refuse, you come to the scriptures because you think in them that you have life, 
but it's actually the scriptures that point to me. Everything in the story of God that you read and that you hold to points and tells you about me. And it's to me that you must come for life. Now that shocked the Jews. <laughs> they got really offended. And uh, things, you know, I don't know how the encounter ended, but it, 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 didn't, it, it didn't end with everybody with a smiling, happy face. And so it's after this that, that this is happening, what God is doing now, what Jesus is doing in this piece. And then in verse 4, we read that the time is around the Passover. So the feast of Passover is at hand. And so Passover and the events of the Exodus is what would have been on every person's mind in that crowd. What do you think they were thinking about that day? Go on, shout it out. Come on. Well, what's that? Yeah, so getting to the promised land, right? Or they, so, yeah, they would have had visions of kind of this past Passover, and it would have hearkened them back to the days of the Exodus. So they would have been thinking about the promised land, Jerusalem, yes. What else? What else might they have been remembering about the time of the Passover and the Exodus? God set them free so they could worship. That's right. God set them free so they could worship. They might have remembered manna from heaven, right? They might have been thinking about a pillar of cloud and flame leading their forefathers in the wilderness. God's giving them a law and taking them to that mountain for the, where they could worship and then uh, teaching them how that he wanted them to build a tabernacle where his presence could dwell. So knowing that Passover is on their minds, knowing that the story, the story of God in that moment of his saving and redemptive work in the people's lives was in their hearts, Jesus takes the opportunity to reveal that the Passover points to him. So just as the Israelites followed the visible presence of God in a pillar of cloud and flame, I am. God with us now leads a crowd that is seeking deliverance from the sickness that ails them. Just as God led his people to a mountain to worship him and called Moses up to that mountain to give him his law for his people, I am now brings his people to a mountain where they will see Jesus for who he is and worship him. Just as God fed his people day after day with the manna that came down from heaven, I am will now satisfy the hunger of the gathered crowd by multiplying loaves and fishes, and everyone will be full. And just as God had instructed that in his tabernacle that he wanted 12 loaves of what is called the bread of presence always before him, to symbolize that his people, the 12 tribes of Israel, were always in his presence and with him. I am instructs the disciples to take some baskets after everyone is eaten, to fill up the baskets with fragments. And wouldn't you just so know that those 12 baskets end up at the feet of Jesus 
the conclusion of this sign. You see, everyone there knew that Moses had prophesied before his death that a prophet would come that would speak in the name of God. See, this crowd sees the sign and they glimpse the foretold prophet. That's what happens in verse 14. Look there. The people exclaim, this indeed is the prophet who is coming into the world. The crowd had their heads up that day. They understand that Jesus is the one that Moses was pointing them to so many years before. They see Jesus for who he is, that he is the promised Messiah. And they're so excited about it, they're ready to take him by force and march him to Jerusalem and make him king. How had the disciples missed what everyone else saw? Time passed. The fruit of what God was doing in our life here as the people of grace was everywhere. But increasingly, I was having a harder and harder time seeing the Lord in what I was doing. The to-do tunnel had stretched out much farther than I could have ever imagined that it would. And just when I thought that there might be light at the end of that tunnel, we had the hailstorm and the windstorms of last spring, and pretty much every roof at this property was either damaged or blown off. <laughs> A whole new cycle of projects that needed to be overseen and managed set in. And continued my reality. A dissonance began to grow in my heart. Keeping my head down. Wasn't working anymore. And the season of God's testing in my life intensified. And me trying to figure things out in my own strength. Me trying to take control and figure out what the next step was. That only seemed to make things worse. I really only had one option left to me. Surrender. It's a surrender that began in prayer. It's a prayer that I've, I've prayed nearly every day since November. Lord, I trust in your plan, even though I can't see it clearly. Lord, I trust in your power more than in my own talent or capability. Lord, I trust in your provision more than what I can provide for myself. Lord, I surrender to you. Please, Lord, give me your presence and your peace as I wait on you to reveal your will. Surrendering would take me on a journey to California to seek clarity around who God had created me to be and what he was calling me to do. Surrender would bring me face to face with some core wounding that I carry in my heart around approval. Surrender would lead me up to a mountaintop 
in one of the British Virgin Islands where I would hear the Lord speak into my heart anew as the Father sent me, Brian, so I send you. Surrender would see me on a beach a few days later in worship or a poem, a song of the sea would pour out of my heart to the Lord. Our ability to see Jesus in the tests of our lives is often directly related to how surrendered our hearts are to Jesus. In the midst of the test that you might be in this morning, what does surrender to Jesus look like? Is there something that you're holding on to that you need to give to Jesus? Is there an old wound that you've carried around for far too long and let fester that it's finally time to bring to the foot of his cross for healing? Is there something that's trapping you in fear and that you need to come to Jesus for freedom in? Is there a call that you need to accept and step out in faith even though the path maybe beyond the first few steps seems really unclear? In the 17th chapter of Proverbs in verse 3, the Lord says that the crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold. And the Lord tests the heart. The good news for us is Jesus doesn't test as the world tests. Jesus isn't about passing and failing. He's not about flunking people out. He tests our hearts out of love. He tests our hearts to pursue our hearts and to refine and purify them. He tests so that we can lift up our heads and fix our gaze on him. You see, that day as Jesus tested his disciples, he didn't want them to come up with some clever solution. He was inviting them to surrender to him in their insufficiency, to worship him just like Jesus' mother had at a wedding in Cana, not that long before. Jesus didn't need them to buy bread. He was inviting them to look to himself, the one who is the bread that came down from heaven to satisfy this hungry crowd. Jesus wanted his disciples to surrender to him so that they could look up and see him in that moment for exactly who he is and who he was revealing himself to be. The disciples didn't see it that day. <laughs> the really good news is that Jesus didn't fire all those disciples and go find 12 new ones. <laughs> he didn't fail them out. <laughs> 
He kept pursuing them. And you know what the amazing thing is? Is that all except for one of those guys, all except for one of those disciples, ended up being the people that we call the apostles. The people that Jesus continued his mission and ministry in and through in an amazing way through the power of the Holy Spirit. This group, this group that couldn't see who he was, becomes the ones that we read about in the Acts of the Apostles. They would eventually look up at Jesus. They would know him as their Lord and their God, and seeing him, Jesus would turn their gaze outward. He would call them to look out and to see what he saw. A harvest, a world that was ripe for the laborers that he wanted to send into it. Jesus continues to do the same thing today. As his people look up at him, he invites us to look out with him. He wants us to see what he sees, and he wants us to be a part of continuing his mission and ministry in the world today. You know, and as we have looked out with him over the past six years, Jesus has helped us to look out in this city. Guys, we live in the seventh largest city in our nation. There are millions of people here. Jesus sees a harvest that is ripe. And Jesus has given us a vision for a part of that city. We're not in it alone. There's lots of other wonderful expressions of the church in the city that God's given great visions to, but he's given us a vision for the Broadway Corridor, the Mission 368 vision. His vision for us has never been about a single expression of the church. It's always been about creating a loving family of interdependent churches that help people by sharing the gospel with them and giving them repeated opportunities to see and hear and respond to who Jesus is and to experience the goodness of his kingdom in their lives, not tomorrow, but today. The thing about the journey in that vision, though, is that pretty much every step along the way for us has been unexpected, hasn't it? You know, we've seen God calling us to plant churches, and the first thing that God does is he brings us a a daughter congregation to adopt in Gathering Midtown. We think we're going to go give birth to some new congregations, and God says, here's one that I want you to be family with. We purchase property down in River North, and then God says, well, actually, I'm going to replant you now here at Northridge. And just as we might have started to catch our breath, right? God has started to, to, you know, we've started to see the, the green shoots of the gospel and kingdom work that God has been doing down around Mankey Park through the relationship with Lamar Elementary and the worship and the praises that have been offered up at Kitty Park year after year. What God is showing us and where he is leading us, Grace, is exciting. Just like that day on the mountain when God fed those 5,000 people, though, we need to remember that he already has the plan. That we need to keep our gaze up on him, our heads up. And we need to ask for him to continue to show us what he sees and where he's leading. And to follow him as he goes.
as Jesus fed the 5,000 that day, he knew that God's plan of salvation for the world would soon bring him to another Passover. A Passover where he would again break bread with his disciples, give thanks to the Father, and share a meal. As he fed the the 5,000 that day, Jesus knew exactly what it meant for him to be the fulfillment of the Passover story. Jesus knew that it would be his blood that would be shed to satisfy God's righteous wrath against the sin of the world. Jesus knew that it would be his body that would be broken so that the relationship between God and humanity could be opened anew and restored. Jesus knew the test that he was walking into. He knew that the time would come for him to be exalted as king of kings and lord of lords. But first he knew that the journey would lead him to become a sacrificial lamb that would be sacrificed so that his people could be set free from the bondage of sin and death that enslaved us all. So this morning as we come to the table, let us see the sign in the sacrament of this holy communion. Let us come to Jesus this morning with surrendered hearts and with our heads up. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. He knows that we're hungry. And he invites us to come with our hungry hearts. To be nourished in the only food and drink that will ever truly satisfy us. So come this morning. Come and be filled with the bread of life. Amen. Let us pray. Abba Father, thank you so much just for uh, sending uh, your son. Thank you, Lord, that um, because of your spirit that you give us eyes to see, uh, Lord, not only what you are doing and saying through your scriptures, uh, but Lord, how you are moving and working even now in each one of our own hearts. Lord, I pray that by your spirit that whatever is happening in the midst of our body, uh, Lord, that you would empower us. Lord, that you would take your hand And that you would just grab our chin, Lord, and that you would just gently lift our gaze from wherever we're looking down and help us look up into your loving eyes. Help us to look into the face of your son. Help us to be nourished and strengthened in him. And as, Lord, as we look look up to you, as we see you, help us, Lord, to look out. Help us to look out into the harvest that you see. Help us to hear the call that you have upon us to go in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and in this city so that we might continue the mission and ministry of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and help people experience the goodness of his kingdom coming in their lives today and for all eternity. We ask this, Lord, gratefully knowing that it's you who have the plan It's that you have already done it before the foundation of the world, and now we have the privilege of walking in it. And so we pray in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.